This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, we're coming to the end of summer. We got one week to go. The summer went by pretty fast. I, what I'm excited about, actually, is the U.S. Open starting on this week. But I'm a little bummed out that summer's going to be over soon. And you're talking about the unofficial summer, which is Memorial Day to Labor Day. Because technically, I think summer, according to um, NASA or whatever, it goes till <laughs> September 21st. That's yes. yes. But... It feels like summer this weekend. I mean, it's like hot and humid in New York. Oh, my God, dude. It's so hot and humid. It's like uncomfortable. I actually don't like summer anymore. (laughs) I'm more of I've moved to in my rankings. It would be fall. Everyone loves fall. Fall, then spring, then winter, then summer. Really? That's what the climate change has done. I don't look forward to summer anymore. The humidity in New York is specifically bad, especially if you're like waiting for a subway all the time, which I am most of the time. Climate change is real. It is. It's a real thing. It is. So as, it's, as rough as it's been in New York, it seems like we actually got off easy. Well, I, yeah, because it hasn't. We haven't had a bad summer in terms of temperature. I think we only had like two weeks where it was really hot. But like we basically have like been in the mid 80s. It's just really humid. Yeah. But I, we haven't really hit that like high 90s. No, we haven't hit triple digits. We haven't hit high 90s. Maybe if you factor in the humidity, but it's just like I bring on fall. I'm ready. Yeah, I'm ready for fall. I'm ready for some new shows. I'm ready for some new movies. I feel like after Barbie and Oppenheimer, we've just kind of hit a bit of a slowdown. Not really much to watch. I I don't even know what there is to watch these days. Well, I'm watching Murders in the Building and that's old, you know, only Murders in the Building. And like, that's not even. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are catching up on things because we were in content heyday for a couple of years. Like a lot of it's really hard to stay on top of everything that was coming out. I know Jess and I were a little late to the party, but we started and and we're finishing The Bear, which we both love. Fantastic. Great show, especially because, you know, we both like to think of ourselves as amateur chefs. I think that adds an element to it. The scenes where they're like in the kitchen. If you like cooking, yeah. There's less of it than I probably expect when I'm describing it to people because it's also like the business side of it and the emotional side of it. But um, yeah, the scenes where he's showing people how to do it, it's it's the best. Well, there, you know what went viral with the bear is that if you watch, this is not a spoiler, but there's a scene where an omelet is made. Well, you will eventually see it and it's gone. Okay. Like everyone is trying this version of an omelet and it looks absolutely incredible. And on TikTok, there's just a lot of people copycatting this like omelet. It's a similar scene to like Chef the movie with John Favreau where he's making the pasta with the parsley and like the Cuban sandwich. And then the, the, I the mean, Cuban I sandwich. Yeah, but bear is great. Yeah, the bear is great. 
Speaking of shows, one of our esteemed guests, Zarna Garg, who was on episode 223 of Better Call Paul, is launching her own pod. So for those that awesome. don't know, you can go back and check out episode 223. She's a hilarious lawyer turned homemaker turned comedian. And she she jokes that you know she was a housewife for 16 years before she realized she wasn't that into it. And during the pandemic... She leveraged social media and TikTok to build a huge following and was just able to really launch her career. She had an Amazon special, one in a billion. She's been on comedy circuits. She's written screenplays. And now she has her podcast called The Zarna Garg Show. It's coming out this month in August. It's two episodes a month. And uh, we wish her all the best. Yeah, that's awesome. Congrats to her. Two episodes a month. That's nice. That's a, that's a good, interesting cadence. I like that. So sad note. One of the legends of daytime TV, Bob Barker, passed away 99 years young. 99. Were you a Price is Right guy? I did like the Price is Right. Like, I mean, I don't watch it all the time. I'm more of a Jeopardy person. But growing up, I watched a lot. When I would visit the U.S. in our summers, the Price is Right was very much part of childhood. It was always on TV. We'd watch it. To me, it very much represents like American TV, American game shows. Yeah, and Bob Barker, man. Uh, what a legend. I remember as a kid growing up during summer vacation, if I wasn't doing like a summer camp thing, I remember I would watch a lot of TV. Price is Right was how you got through that 11 a.m., hour because that was like Price is Right and then it <laughs> yeah, leads yeah, into yeah. the afternoon syndication, yeah. whatever that was, Airwolf or A-Team or Wonder Years, whatever and then you get the cartoons coming in. Wonder Years, so, wow. The wow. Price is Right. It was a good show. It's a great show. Is it is Price Price is Right is not the one that Drew Carey took yes, over, Yes, right? it is. It is. He did take over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you Bob remember Barker was, uh, Bob uh, Barker in, uh, in... In Happy Gilmore. Happy Gilmore, yeah. He was incredible in Happy Gilmore. I actually saw Adam Sandler had posted on Instagram a little tribute to him, and it was like photos from them on the set of Happy Gilmore because that, that was such a great cameo. Yeah, a complete departure from... Yeah, I know. The character he plays is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Maybe we'll rewatch that. R.I.P. Bob Barker. Yeah. So we'll take a quick break and jump back in with uh update on strikes and unions. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So as we record this, this is not a rerun. The WGA strike has gone into week, uh, well, sorry. It's 18, the, right? Well, as we record, it's 117 days. SAG is at 40 plus days, but really it feels like closer to two months because they just did a few week extension uh, when their deal was up at the end of June. And we've talked ad nauseum about the major issues in the areas of disagreement between talent and the studios. Uh, and there isn't really a ton to announce right now other than the sides are back at the table. They're back at the negotiating table, at least the WGA is, with the AMPTP. 
And writers are still dug in. They're still saying all the right things and that they're united and that there's no sign of caving. Even though it's 117 days, they are strong and steadfast. And they feel that they're finally starting to get some meaningful concessions in at least certain areas with respect to AI. Now, some of the writers have said the AMPTP has assuaged some of their concerns, uh, meaning that they're not going to just use AI-produced work without disclosing it. I don't know how you really police this, but they're saying that they're going to ensure that AI-produced material is not passed off as human work. So maybe it'll be in a different color font or on a different color page or something and just laid into the scripts or or the notes. I, I don't know how they're going to differentiate between what's human-created and what's AI-created, but a, the AMPTP apparently is open to guardrails. It's very important to make sure that the work is distinguished because if you don't do that, it's just going to create so many more problems around like attribution and stuff like that. It's, it's going to be one of the biggest issues. Like how do you build on people's work? Who's getting credited for it? And it is, it's a tough one, you know, cause like if we, we've talked about this before, you know, um, stability AI mid journey. Like if you've actually tried creating like images or, you know, even some of these like AI videos and stuff, I think it's very important that those things should be labeled. It's like a disclaimer, right? You should disclaim that this is like AI generated versus not. Uh, there's just so many more like problems that's going to happen if we don't do that. We, we just won't even know what's real or what's not. We'll talk about this at the end segment on this show, but I think the gray area is something where there's a human working with prompt, working with an algorithm, coming up with yeah. something that's a hodgepodge of human contribution and algorithm contribution. For example, one of the concerns that writers raised is that a lot of times what happens is you hire a writer to do a first draft and then a few steps, additional steps. So they'll come up with a treatment and then do a rewrite, maybe a polish. And then another writer might get brought in to edit it or to do another polish or something. And so one of their concerns is that instead of having those first two or three steps that are the most expensive be done by a writer, those will be done by some algorithm. And then you just hand a script, which is like 80% done to a writer and say, okay, make this better, make it more cohesive, make it flow better. Right. We want it to be X, Y, Z. We want these themes to be highlighted. I think one of the concerns is that the starting point becomes something that instead of as a very expensive proposition where humans are writing it, it's like, well, we know this can be imperfect because we're going to have a couple of humans editing it and polishing it after it's largely created. I definitely see that. I mean, I, I again, I think like we're still in AI being used as a tool. To your point, it's 80% done. You, know, you use it as an assistant and that's okay. Like I, I don't see us going to a point where like AI is actually like writing full on scripts that are good. We're, I think we're very, very far from that. I've actually tested this with ChatGPT. I asked it to write a script for me in the form of Quentin Tarantino and uh, it wasn't good. Now, granted, maybe my idea was really terrible. My prompt was really bad, but it's it's like you still need that human element of creativity. When you're a writer about to sign on to a potentially three-year agreement or, or, or set the baseline principles for AI that may govern the rest of your career, you don't yeah, want to sure. rest on your laurels and be like, well, you know, the algorithms are so far away from being good enough today. That's you know, true. What's the worst That's that true. could happen? Because next thing you know, you know, and I, I think for we've talked about this before for some of these crime dramas that are basically the yes, same structure yes. with subtle differences, like someone's 
found in a closet versus under a bed or whatever. I mean, it's like that stuff I feel would be very easy. That is a very good point. And it's funny, as we know at this point, I find all my information on TikTok these days. And TikTok is having a heyday with like the show Seventh Heaven. Do you remember the show? Yeah. Jessica Biel. Uh, Jessica Biel. Yes. And um, they basically just like they show the episodes and someone's commenting on it and like how ridiculous these episodes are. And it's very funny, but it, it is like because these episodes are so outrageous about this pastor who basically saves the day on everything. I could very much see in that case, like feed that to an AI and then like have it just say like, hey, write us the next like three seasons of Seventh Heaven. And to your point, like any crime drama, whatever, if you have enough information, I think that's a very valid observation. Fan bases like things that are familiar. At the same time, we want to see original works. And it's that balancing act. If I were a writer and I did it for a living, I would be very concerned. But if our studio, I think the only thing you can do is take a wait and see approach and say, well, let's be cautious. Let's try to establish a process because we can't figure out the next 20 years of this right now. I mean, we just can't. No, and you're right. I mean, look, we, I mean, we said it numerous times on this podcast that on one side, it's about cost cutting and being more efficient, like from a financial standpoint. And on the other side, it's, it's like protecting people. And there is a balance between the two. It is a good thing for people to figure it out now versus like later, because that's when it's going to get more complicated. It is absolutely the right thing to try to figure out like what is the nuance here. It's complicated, though. That's the thing. It's very complicated. No, it is. And we have one other topic on the unionization front, which is that VFX, visual effects workers who have historically not been members of a union and not been subject to you know, those protections like minimum comp and pension, health and welfare, they've almost entirely been freelance or working for companies, but not subject to any unions. Some of them, particularly those who work on Marvel Pictures, are taking a vote as to whether or not they should unionize. So the vote started August 21st and final ballots are due September 11th with the tally to be taken September 12th. And really the plan would be, if it's approved by the voters, the VFX union would be a part of IATSE, which we've talked about in episodes yeah. four and 213. And IATSE covers a lot of different areas like crew, grip, electric, hair, makeup, wardrobe, set design, sound, editing, and, and a lot of other things. But one of the common threads with IATSE is these individuals are rendering services typically on set. So a lot of what they do is hyper-focused on the location of where the product is being produced and made. And VFX, I think one of the reasons it historically been excluded from unions is it can be done in theory anywhere. I mean, you can have... yeah a team of VFX artists working on high-speed computers on the other side of the world or on the other side of the country. So it's hard to say specifically, like if there's this really strong VFX union that covers California or even the US, it's hard to say that a studio couldn't have its VFX work done in Canada or London or New Zealand, you know, wherever, Weta or Double Night. I mean, there's VFX studios could really be anywhere. And so I wonder how much protection the, a VFX union could exert, obviously the devil's going to be in the details, but this is at least one area that it, it seems like can be outsourced to a different country. Do we know why historically VFX hasn't unionized until like the discussions around now? So I think part of the reason is geography. And I think another part of the reason is VFX is not 
really done by freelancers as much as it's done by companies. So you have VFX houses that'll have hundreds of employees and, and artists that are working for them. And they may be W-2 employees for the VFX house, or maybe they're 1099s. I'm not exactly sure about that, but you hire a company to deliver us a bunch of shots. So whether it's ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, or Double Negative, or Lola VFX, or any one of these companies, a studio will hire them on a project, and then it's up to the VFX house to put the team together to make the bid. So it's not as right. if the studios are hiring the artists directly, where in terms of acting and writing and crew, in a lot of cases, you are hiring the, the creators directly and the contributors directly. So for example, if you're a studio, let's say you're a studio that makes high budget action movies and you do a lot of VFX work, you're gonna have deals with a lot of the biggest VFX houses. And a lot of times, because you have that much leverage, you can say, well, I need a flat fee deal. I need it to be done by this date. I need this many shots. And then it's up to the VFX house to manage that budget, right? So they bid it out where they think they can make a little bit of profit. And then they might put 100 people on it. They might put 200 people on it. They might put 1,000 people on it, depending on what it is. But it's not as if, in most cases, that the VFX artists are working directly for the studios. I mean, VFX has only, in the past 15, 20 years, become such a huge deal in terms of where it's, like, in most of the... Right, right. Tentpole pictures, it's like a nine-figure part of the budget for the, the most expensive films. You know, usually a third of the budget for a Marvel film, for example, is going to be VFX and post. And so that hasn't been the case for more than, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Whereas, so it's it's evolved more recently and the dollars have gotten really big recently. And there's also a less direct connection between the actual individuals doing the work and the studios that are paying for the work. That makes sense. And and I think that like with the strike that's happening now and the conversation around AI, it does make a lot of sense. Potentially why VFX would want to unionize given that like AI usage around visual effects is a huge component of what it would be used for film industry, gaming industry, you name it. The idea of like using imagery to essentially like fast track certain things. I mean, the, the example of like Indiana Jones, and the Dial of Destiny, making Harrison Ford like younger version of him. You know, there is a lot of AI usage in that. It's not that it, this is a new thing. They've been using it for a really long time. We're just getting into a bit more of a gray area around like, how are you going to use this? Right. And, and, and VFX, there's a lot of proprietary technology and there's built in relationships. So, for example, I think we talked about this before. If you're working on a franchise and you have the information and the code to like create a city or to create Optimus Prime or something, you're not going to hire some competitor to reinvent the wheel. You're going to go with the company that did that for film one, two, three in the franchise to also do film four because they're not going to be starting from scratch. So, there's efficiencies there. But you know, VFX is, it's incredibly important. It's a huge part of the budget, like I said, but it can be outsourced to different geographies. And I think a couple of years ago when the AFM started striking, a lot of studios started scoring in Europe, right? They just didn't have right. US musicians right. scoring because you can score something, you know, separate from where it's made. You can create the score in recording studio or with an orchestra in Europe and then you sidestep the whole union issue. So that is actually a very good point because again, it comes back down to costs. And so if you are unionizing 
VFX in the US, to your point, everyone is always going to look for the, okay, well, what's the other option that we have overseas? And like, I think things are clearly different now than they were 20 years ago. The talent overseas is very, very high. We see it in tech. We see it across industries. Like you can get really, really great work at a fraction of a price if you don't need people to be like in office and you don't, you know, you don't care about time zones and stuff. Yeah. And there may be cities and countries that are like, hey, we'll give you a tax credit to do your VFX here. Right. They may. Exactly. You know, so that's another complicating factor. It's like if you're a VFX worker in LA, I think what they've been saying, at least with this vote, is that they feel like the free market has failed them because it hasn't led to ideal labor conditions for them. And so maybe they vote to unionize to protect that. But there's also a concern that they overcorrect and then the work goes somewhere else. You know, we've talked about tax credits in, in terms of filming, like the Toronto, Vancouver, Atlanta, you know, and essentially applying that now, like you could be in Dubai and probably, you know, potentially have a really great VFX house. And, you know, they're giving you tax credits. They're giving you a discount there. And the talent is still, you know, up they there. Already and, have, they have. And, and I they don't do. know about yes, Dubai. Yes, they do. But VFX tax credits are definitely big in British Columbia and other parts of the world. Like, right, right, right. So right. it's it's a slippery slope for sure. Yeah. I'll be curious to see how the vote, what the ultimate tally is in that second week of September. But for now, the vote is happening and we'll, we'll keep you updated on what is decided. Uh, all right, so let's take a break and we'll get back and talk about our last segment, AI copyright. So, Mesh, there's a case that was just decided August 18th called uh, Thaler v. Palmutter, which is what we're going to talk about yeah. as decided in the D.C. Circuit. But I think we need to take a step back to really frame it. This is an issue we've talked about a handful of times in the show, which is copyright. Copyright is a legal protection. Uh, it's intellectual property protection that is afforded to the authors of original works of authorship that are fixed in a tangible medium of expression. So basically a creative work, a photo, a drawing, a poem, a song, a character, a story, things like that, that are creative works, potentially all of art. We, as a society, we want to encourage people to make things like that. So we give them the exclusive right to reproduce, distribute, monetize those works that they create. And of course, you can license it, you can sell it, you can transfer it, you can assign it. And that's led to a huge market for art and other content. And so the fundamental underpinnings of this, at least in the U.S., are codified in the Copyright Act, which is 17 U.S.C., chapters 1 through 8 and 10 through 12. And courts and judges in the Copyright Office have been interpreting these handful of words over and over and over to determine whether something gets copyright protection, what the scope of it is, what the duration is. And it's a huge part of film and television and and podcasts. So when something is creative, what does that mean? I mean, there isn't really a, a hard and fast rule to define what creative is, but original work of authorship means that it's been interpreted to mean that it's something that's created by a human. So for example, yeah. you know, that elephant that can hold a paintbrush in its trunk and paint, like whatever it paints, it's not copyrightable yes. because it's not, the elephant's it's not, not copyright. Yep. Which is kind yeah. of a shame for the elephant. But anyway, that's the way the law was written. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's you know, that's the fundamental baseline. And the judge in this case of Thaler v. Palmutter, the judge is Beryl Howell. And she noted that copyright law is inherently malleable because 
it's not like we're saying that technology can play no role. Obviously, if the earliest time when people were scraping drawings into the sides of caves with like stones or something or whatever they were using to, you know, using pencils and paper to yeah. instruments to computers now, technology has always been a part of the creation of work, right? So you and I, we do this podcast to the extent it's copyrightable. Part of the reason it is, is because we can record it in these wave files, we can record the video, we can distribute it, right? So it's fixed when we record it, but that would not have been possible without the technology to do it. And so they're not saying that you can't use technology or that any use of technology will render something not copyrightable. They're saying that as long as a human is guiding the process and has control over the process, if they're using technology incidentally to further their creative process, it's eligible for copyright protection. But if it's purely generated by a computer or a machine, then it's not. I was reading through this and these are very hard decisions to make. And I think that they're making the right decision here. Powell was quoted, you got this from the Hollywood Reporter, human involvement in an ultimate creative control over the work at issue was a key to the conclusion that the new type of work fell within the bounds of copyright. This just goes back to like the example we were talking about mid journey, right? Like you can go on mid journey, you can put a prompt in and you can say, Mesh and Paul eating ice cream in the park. And it generates an image of us within like seconds. And it, it is a weird world where I would say, well, well, I made that. That's mine. That belongs to me now. When in, in fact, like it doesn't like that's not I didn't we didn't really do much besides a prompt. And, and I think that it'd be different if I gave an image that we already took like of you and I in the park. And I said, Hey, add more hair to meshes like receding hairline. Like, would that be an example of like the difference between the two? In theory? Yeah. I mean, so the judge was able to sidestep the issue in this case, Thaler v. Pulmeter, because just to give people a background on the facts, Steven Thaler is an inventor. He's a, I guess, a tech computer guy. And he created this thing called the creativity machine, which made, an image, and he tried to file that image for copyright right. protection at the copyright office, and he listed the creativity machine as the author. He didn't list himself as the author. Then when that filing got rejected because on the grounds that there was no human component to it, he sued. And he said, hey, this is arbitrary, capricious. This is you're violating the authority that you're given as the copyright office, and this should be protectable. Either he didn't read the Copyright Act or he was trying to be really aggressive. Or if he had said something like, we worked on this together, or I put in the prompts and I guided the machine and this and that, he basically listed the machine as the author and not himself. If he had done it the other way around, I don't know how it would have gone. But the judge also was like, we don't have to answer that question because it wasn't until after he was rejected that he was filing his lawsuit that he said that he had some input into the creative work. So... They're not evaluating whether he did enough work. They're just saying, we're not going to give something copyright protection if it was only done by a machine. So going back to your, your point about the elephant, because um, I, I was, again, reading in this article, I, I didn't read, I never really thought about this, like, and quote from Hollywood Reporter again, in another case, federal appeals court said that a photo captured by a monkey can't be granted a copyright since animals don't qualify for protection. So in this case, it's it's the same thing here. Like the computer, the AI, whatever we want to call it here, the technology doesn't count. Like they don't have rights. It doesn't count. But as far as legal questions go, that's kind of a layup, right? Because really the hard question is what you mentioned, which is the gray area. Like let's say someone is coming up with the prompts. Let's say someone takes the output of 
the algorithm and edits it a little bit or tweaks it, yes, right? Yes. Because then it's yes. now a hybrid of something that's been created by a computer and created by a human or created by a computer with human assistance or the other way around. And that is, I think, a much harder question to say whether that's copyrightable or not. Because, you know, when you talk about music, I am not a talented musician, but with a digital audio workstation and some of the software and running loops and all the different formulas yes, and things, yes. I can make a song. Although I can't yes. necessarily play instruments well, I can use software. And, and some producers are like that. Like they may not necessarily be able to play instruments but they can make music with their software. And so that I think it hasn't really come under question because it's all considered part of the human creativity. But I think that line is somewhere in there where who's doing the real work? Is it the software? Is it the algorithm or is it the person? I don't know. But I think that's a really, that's the tough question. That's a tough question. I mean, it's the same example. Like we never really questioned, I take a photo and then I edit it on Photoshop you know, and make it nicer, enhance it, whatever it might be, but it's still my photo, but I am essentially using technology to make it better or more presentable, but that always made sense. It was pretty obvious. Yeah, so in that sense, Photoshop is a tool, just like a pencil or a piece of paper. Is a tool, yeah. But mid-journey would be something more distinct. Right, but like Photoshop AI now is saying, hey, I'm gonna give you a photo and I want you to fill in the background of this photo with like a city skyline. And it'll, it'll do that. It will generate that for you. So then is that, okay, so you gave it the original photo, but then it created like this whole new backdrop. It's, it's a hybrid. Like where does that fall uh, in terms of copyright? Yeah, we don't know. I mean, based on what the judge said, she didn't have to answer that question. And so that's why I consider it this fact pattern more of a layup, which is good. It's a good one to get in the win column if you're the copyright office, but because there's so many open questions as to like how much human contribution is enough. Right. And what about the role of human works that were f fed to the algorithm to train it? Like what does right, do those have right, any right, right. implication? Are those, are those protected or not? Those sorts of questions, I think you're going to have to leave those to Congress to answer because it's, you know, it's within the scope of the Copyright Act, but it's nothing that was ever really contemplated when it was drafted. Yeah, and I think just like to conclude on that, it is really why this strike is so complicated. It's not like a, there's no real easy fix here because yes, there's you know there's one thing around like residuals and like streaming and, and we get all that right like that could be figured out, but on the AI side, it is so. It's so freaking complex and no one really knows the answer. Yeah, and streaming can also, I mean, streaming could be a bigger issue, honestly, because the platforms haven't had to share data. And if fundamentally right. they want a solution where they don't have to change that part of their model, then, you know, that could be as big an issue as AI. I mean, from the, the writer's perspective, it's pretty simple. From the actor's perspective, it's like, don't use AI right, without our right. approval, right? And don't use our likeness without our approval or we'll recreate it without our approval. It doesn't sound like the studios want to agree to that, which is why, it's, as you said, it's a hard question because it's like, what's the balance that both sides are happy with? And how do we make sure that that balance doesn't get yeah. eroded over time? But that's why people get paid the big bucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you know, no matter what, uh, on the legal side of things, I feel like there's going to be a lot of work when it comes to this. And figuring it out now, I mean, I think this is why it's, I'm, I'm so glad we get to talk about this and like, because it hasn't been figured out. There's so many more open questions. Like no one really knows the answers to any of this stuff, including people in technology, by the way. I mean, it happens It happens to my clients. I mean, clients will call me or they'll say, hey, we, we did a deal. We're going to purchase XYZ 
catalog of, of art and images. And then you wonder, it's like, well, was this generated by AI? Can you get proof that it wasn't? Because right. what are you buying if it's not protectable copyright? Tricky stuff. Very tricky. Uh, we'll keep everyone posted, but good breakdown. And uh, that's our show for this week, folks. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Tell your friends, write us a review. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, at Better Call Paul the Podcast. Follow me on Twitter, at Mesh Lakani. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone.